This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, uh, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Ross Harrison, who is a fellow in gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, welcome, Ross. Thank you. Really, uh, really excited to share the results of this paper. So, um, Russ, we want to talk to you about, I think, a, a very interesting and important paper that uh, was recently published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, um, titled The National Patterns of Care and Fertility Outcomes for Reproductive Age Women with Endometrial Cancer or a Typical Hyperplasia. And just wanted to see if you could share with us what is the rationale as to why you performed this study and why do you think this study is relevant? So um, I think the uh, main reason why we think that the study is relevant is um, we know that the incidence of endometrial cancer is increasing. Over the last 15 years, we've seen a 10% increase in new cases in the United States. This trend will likely continue. Um, and at the same time, there's also been considerable academic interest in the fertility sparing management of endometrial cancer and complex atypical hyperplasia. You see the literature is filled with uh, these individual um, institutions' experiences with fertility-sparing treatment. And so what we wanted to do is really examine um, this area from a broader perspective using a national data set. So, Ross, uh, obviously, yes, as you said, very relevant topic um, because there's an increasing number of patients that are coming to us for conservative management of um, endometrial cancer. So can you explain a little bit more in detail, like what data do we have in the literature as to what is today the best conservative management for patients with endometrial cancer? And I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in the efficacy of the uh, progestin um, intrauterine devices or IUDs. Right. So um, in general, this area is uh, one where, unfortunately, there's a lack of really high quality evidence. Um, uh, I think that uh, best practice in this area starts with um, really uh, careful patient selection. But with regards to the best approach to treatment um, with uh, progestin therapy, um, the, uh, the effectiveness of IUDs um, specifically tends to be in the 70 to 80% range with perhaps complex atypical hyperplasia having a slightly higher um, complete response rate than endometrial cancer, but still very impressive response rates nonetheless. Um, uh, it's important to note, though, however, that there's a lot of variability amongst the studies in uh, in terms of both the patients that are included, as well as the uh, as well as the specifics of treatment. Sometimes there are patients who are included in these studies who received what it, what would be considered fertility preserving treatment, but it was for an indication besides fertility preservation. Other studies um, include. IUDs with uh, various oral medications as well as uh, different amounts of progestin released by the, uh, by the IUD. And so um, there's a lot of variability and so it needs to be interpreted carefully. But in general, uh, I would say the, um, the gist of the evidence suggests that the IUDs are efficacious and um, uh, certainly from a clinical standpoint, they offer some advantages over uh, oral uh, progestin therapy alone. So Rob, tell us about uh, the, um, the primary and secondary objectives of this study. 
Yeah. So our primary objective was uh, relatively straightforward, which was to estimate the proportion of reproductive age patients with um, either endometrial cancer or atypical hyperplasia who were treated with um, fertility conserving treatment. Um, and then our secondary endpoints really got at sort of the fertility side of uh of uh, this management, looking at uh, pregnancy uh, rates as well as the use of fertility treatment um, in this cohort. And if you can tell us a little bit about the study design, and uh, and you know certainly the selection for the uh, for the Truven Health Market Scan Research Database. I, I had not heard of this database before, and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, in terms of uh, study design, this was a, uh, a retrospective cohort study that used a uh, used market scan, as you said, which is a large uh, health insurance uh, database. So essentially, you're using the health insurance claims to um, uh, to uh, as sort of surrogates for um, what in a more conventional sort of retrospective review would be the uh, clinical data that you discern from the medical record. Um, and the reason why we used market scan specifically is that unlike the other large data sets that are commonly used to evaluate um, uh, sort of national patterns of care in oncology, uh, market scan really allows us to get at uh, variables relevant to fertility sparing treatment, specifically pregnancy events and the use of assisted fertility services. Um, uh, NCDB, excuse me, uh, the National Cancer Database and um, uh, sort of uh, publicly available um, epidemiologic measures of um, uh, cancer treatment in the United States generally don't include this pregnancy in information and treatment information apart from what's directly related to the cancer. And so that's one of the advantages of using market scan for this analysis. And Ross, the, the market scan database, is that something that anyone can have access to? Um, so market scan is a, um, is a proprietary product that's offered. Um, uh, many large uh, research institutions will buy essentially a subscription to uh, MarketScan, um, but uh, it's not publicly available um, uh, per se. Okay. So tell us about the specific inclusion and exclusion criteria of your study, because I understand you not only had patients with endometrial cancer, but you also had patients with uh, endometrial hyperplasia. Right. Um, so <clears throat> to uh, the process by which we sort of identified our, uh, the sample of patients that we analyzed, we started by um, uh, looking in the market scan database for all women who were diagnosed with either endometrial cancer or complex atypical hyperplasia between uh, 1999 and 2014 and used um, a few additional years around that range uh, to um, ensure we had complete data. And then we were interested specifically in those who were younger than the age of 45. Um, and then we, uh, we then excluded a certain number of uh, this sort of larger cohort so that we would have um, complete information on the uh, on the remaining ones for the purpose of the analysis. So we excluded patients who um, had less than 24 months of follow-up 
because we wanted to make sure that we both had enough uh, time for uh, there to be a response to treatment as well as enough time for them to attempt pregnancy. Um, we figured we might bias our, uh, our endpoints one way or the other if we had too short a follow-up. And in the vast majority of uh, patients, the, um, uh, the follow-up that we had uh, actually was much longer than the two years. Um, we excluded patients who uh, had been diagnosed with endometrial cancer before the observation period. And then finally, we excluded patients where we couldn't tell what type of treatment that they had received. Obviously, all of, the, all of these sort of exclusion criteria could introduce some bias, but um, ultimately, uh, we felt that um, the final cohort that we identified, which was just over 4,000 women, um, would be relatively representative of a reproductive-aged group of patients who had endometrial cancer or complex atypical hyperplasia. So, Ross, you, you had obviously quite a number of patients. You opted to um, stratify in three different categories. Can, can you tell us about those three categories and, and why did you do so? Yeah. Um, we grouped uh, the patients uh, in t after identifying uh, this cohort. We grouped them into three groups based on the type of treatment that they received. Um, the vast majority of patients, as you would expect, were treated with hysterectomy alone, um, as this is the uh, agreed-upon standard of care in our field. Um, the remaining patients uh, were about evenly split between two other groups. There was a group of patients who were treated with progestins and then uh, subsequently underwent hysterectomy at a later point. And then there was a group of individuals who were treated exclusively with progestin medication. And this is a group where that we would um, believe to be uh, those that really received true fertility sparing treatment. And when you look at the total number of patients that you included, um, is this a study that's primarily about patients with endometrial hyperplasia or a study that's primarily about patients with cancer? What, what was the distribution in terms of endometrial hyperplasia versus cancer? Um, the vast majority of these patients had endometrial cancer. Um, the split was about 80% of them had cancer and the remaining 20% had uh, endometrial hyperplasia. Okay. So now on to the, um, the results. What did you find? What were the, the major findings from, from this study? So um, with regards to the primary endpoint, um, I, we found that approximately a fifth of the cohort of patients were treated with uh, fertility sparing treatment, at least initially. So either they were treated only with progestins or treated with progestins for a duration and then underwent hysterectomy. Um, and then importantly, we uh, found that the use of fertility sparing treatment um, increased dramatically over time with uh, patients that were near the end of the observation period being um, about 75% more likely to receive fertility sparing treatment uh, than those in the beginning. And then finally, in the last year of the study, we um, observed that nearly one in four patients were managed at least initially with uh, progestin-based therapy. Um, in terms of the secondary uh, outcomes, uh, we found that, as you might expect, uh, pregnancy is a relatively uncommon um, event uh, to occur after a diagnosis of endometrial cancer or endometrial hyperplasia has been made. Um, 
if you uh, exclude the patients who had a hysterectomy and just looked at the ones who were managed with progestins, we found that approximately 12% of them would um, uh, would go on to have a live birth after being diagnosed with either endometrial cancer or um, complex atypical hyperplasia. And Ross, do you, do you feel that um, that this increasing trend in use of the conservative management is it because uh, we as a community of gynecologic oncologists see that there's more evidence for the safety, oncologic safety of this approach? Or is it because it's, are, we ha are we seeing an increase in, in, in younger women having endometrial cancer? I, th <clears throat> I think that um, the most, I think that probably both of those trends drive the uh, increased use Um, I think there's a growing awareness of um, the effectiveness of fertility sparing treatment. That said, um, with the rising incidence of endometrial cancer, patients, um, especially younger patients, are going to be, um, uh, some of them at least, will be interested in uh, preserving fertility. And so I think that both of those are drivers of this trend. And Ross, the, um, you know, certainly, obviously, when you look at so many patients, uh, I was interested in, in learning uh, what was the most uh, commonly used conservative management? Was it oral progestins or was it the IUD? Were you able to tell from this large database? So um, the most common method used uh, was uh, were oral progestins, um, although approximately 20% of the cohort uh were also treated with an IUD. Um, although just to provide context, um, obviously it might be different in other countries over the same time period, but in the United States, um, the Mirena um, uh, device uh, was approved as a contraceptive uh, in 2000. So, dur so for the entire, um, or at least almost the entire observation period, there was a progestin-containing IUD available. Um, that said, um, there probably was something of a lag between its approval as a contraceptive um, to uh, its use as, a, um, as an approach to conservative management of endometrial cancer. So, Ross, one, one of the things that I, I read, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the rate of patients that ultimately was able to get pregnant was low. I think it was, you, you quoted 21.8%. Um, why do you think this is the case? Yeah, I, uh, I think that this is a, a really important question. Um, our estimate of um, uh, pregnancy outcomes is, uh, is certainly lower than some of the published estimates that are available in the literature, uh, which tend to suggest that pregnancy rates and live birth rates may be as high as 30 or 40 percent um, for, um, for women who are diagnosed with endometrial cancer who um, uh, seek fertility conservation. Um, I think here uh, a lot depends on the denominator that you're using to calculate uh, your um, uh, proportion who achieve pregnancy. Uh, present Preservation of fertility is not the sole rationale for non-surgical management of these conditions. And so not all women who in our uh, cohort received fertility sparing treatment um, necessarily did so um, for the purpose of, for, of preserving fertility. Um, and then even in 
even among those uh, women who are interested in preserving fertility, um, some ultimately will not go on to attempt pregnancy. Um, and uh, it, this is an area where, uh, of, this is an area that's an important limitation of our study. Unlike most of the various institutional reviews that um, describe uh, the use of fertility sparing treatment, we can't really um, describe the intent of uh, progestin-based therapy. Was it for um, was it for the purpose of fertility conservation, or was it for some other uh, valid indication? Um, Otherwise, I think that uh, the low pregnancy um, or low live birth rate really reflects uh, some of the challenges that this patient that this patient group faces. Um, the same risk factors that predispose them to endometrial cancer are barriers to uh, treatment of, um, or excuse me, are barriers to them achieving pregnancy, obesity, PCOS, chronic anovulation. And Ross, one of the things that obviously will come up in the discussions with these patients when talking about fertility preservation, and you know, and regardless of what that percentage might be, the the patient the patients ultimately will ask, well, were these spontaneous pregnancies, or did the majority of the patients need, particularly in this study, what percentage of the patients ultimately required fertility treatments, like particularly in vitro fertilization? Right, in our uh, in our cohort of the patients who were managed with progestins, we found that about 20% of them also used uh, fertility uh, services. Um, we used a relatively broad description of fertility services for reasons that um, I, I can sort of get into, but I, if you look at the subset of the conservatively managed patients who ultimately achieved a pregnancy or a live birth, you see that the proportion of patients who underwent fertility uh, treatment um, was greater than 50%. So um, while the cohort as a whole, 20% of them um, used uh, assisted fertility services, among those that uh, were successful in achieving pregnancy, assuming that that was their goal, um, uh, the use of um, the use of assisted fertility services was much higher. So one of the things, and obviously you may not have a, a concrete answer for this, but one of the things that that comes to mind is: should we aim to routinely evaluate patients who undergo conservative management for feasibility of fertility prior to the recommendation? of the conservative management. And, and this is, you know, particularly given that the ASCO uh, guidelines recommend that any patient with cancer seeking fertility preservation should see a fertility specialist. I think that, um, I, I think that in this setting, uh, the role of a fertility specialist is um, really central. And I think it should actually come uh, concurrent with the decision to even pursue fertility sparing treat uh, fertility conserving treatment, um, it's important to note that uh, while many uh, younger women who face a diagnosis of cancer um, uh, do have to sort of contend with the um, implications of, on fertility. Um, this group of patients specifically um, with endometrial cancer or atypical hyperplasia tends to have 
challenges to fertility that existed even before they were diagnosed with um, their malignancy. They're sort of starting from, uh, they're not exactly starting from the same starting line that, uh, that say a patient with breast cancer might be um, uh, starting from. They are actually probably contending with subfertility at baseline. And so I think here, <clears throat> the role of, a, uh, of an REI or a fertility specialist is um, really central in helping a uh, patient evaluate, all right, what are my chances of, uh, of getting pregnant after um, having this diagnosis? And what is it going to take? What, uh, what interventions am I going to need? And, and so I think that really here, um, uh, getting the patient to see a fertility specialist early um, uh, is, uh, is really a, a goal that should be pursued. I think that uh, consultation with a fertility specialist really adds a lot of value to uh, patient care here. And Ross, the, one of the other questions that often comes up when, when counseling these patients is obviously, you know, the patients are wondering, am I taking a gamble here rather than just having a, a hysterectomy? Uh, is this going to put my life at risk? And, and my next question is, is there any data to determine if women who undergo conservative management ultimately have a higher rate of like cancer specific mortality? Right. Obviously, the uh, the trade-off between um, fertility conservation and optimal um, uh, management of uh, cancer um, is uh, is a trade-off that is really relevant to these patients. And um, as far as I'm aware, there are two published analyses that look at this uh, this question. Um, one using the um, National Cancer Database, and the other using um, uh, SEER. Uh, both are based out of the United States, and both of them seem to suggest that there is some increased risk of mortality with non-surgical management of endometrial cancer. Um, uh, particularly, the National Cancer Database um, analysis estimated that treatment with progestins as opposed to surgery increased patients' risk of death uh, by about 90%. Now, um, to provide context, the five-year survival for both groups, the surgery group and the progestin group, was uh, greater than 96%. And so, um, overall, the um, oncologic outcomes uh, are very good in both groups, but... Um, uh, there still is a uh, impaired survival um, with progestin therapy. Um, one of the other important findings uh, from that National Cancer uh, Database study, though, uh, found that the difference in mortality um, went away when you consider just patients who had a parent stage 1A uh, tumors. And I think that that just really underscores the importance of uh, careful um, evaluation and treatment planning. Yeah, it really brings up the importance of, of counseling our patients appropriately with all of this information. Um, so, Ross, what are, what are some of the limitations of, of this study? Right. I, um, uh, I think that definitely there are some limitations. Some of them we've, uh, we've touched on a little bit already. Um, obviously, uh, it would be uh, great to have more complete clinical information than is available in a, um, a, a health insurance claims data set. We aren't able to determine stage. We aren't able to determine tumor histology, uh, for example. Um, and uh, just to come back to one of the limitations that we touched on before, but we really can't 
uh, definitively say what the intent of progestin therapy was. Was it for fertility sparing treatment or was it for some other valid indication? Um, and I think that that's particularly true for the group of patients who received progestin therapy initially, but then un ultimately underwent uh, surgery. We can't really tell why they, um, uh, if you will, switched management approaches. Did they have surgery because they didn't respond to uh, progestin therapy? Did they uh, change their mind about the goals of treatment? Or was it never really a switch was uh, in a management approach? Was there some reason uh, that progestin therapy was given um, while the intent all along was to ultimately undergo, uh, ultimately undergo surgery? Um, we also, um, as mentioned before, aren't able to determine the proportion of patients who wanted to attempt pregnancy. Um, and so the, uh, the live birth rates and pregnancy um, event rates uh, should be uh, interpreted with that in mind. Um, and then uh, one other important uh, limitation of this study is that uh, it uses... Um, uh, commercial health insurance as a mechanism to essentially uh, collect uh, data. Um, and so uh, as a result of the um, uh, uh, as a result of the fact that we needed at least two years of health insurance coverage in order for the patient to be included in the analysis, um, uh, this population would likely face relatively fewer challenges in terms of access to healthcare services than um, a group of patients that perhaps didn't have uh, continuous coverage over a period of time. And so, um, I think the it's I think that questions are um, very reasonable to ask about the generalizability of the findings um, with regards to patients who are uninsured or uh, perhaps underinsured, and um, especially for patients who are uh, covered by government health insurance uh, like Medicaid. And Ross, uh, just um, obviously one of the, the last questions that always comes up in the discussions with, with these patients, um, you know, if the patient has gotten pregnant and the, you know, the, the, the natural question is, well, should I undergo a hysterectomy after uh, my pregnancy, if in fact there is no evidence of any uterine disease noted, either hyperplasia or cancer? Uh, yeah, I think that that um, is uh, certainly a challenging question. Um, so in a patient who has completed childbearing after successfully pursuing fertility sparing management, I think that um, uh, I think that I that hysterectomy would be recommended in most cases. Um, I think that if you consider the two diagnoses uh, that we examined here, endometrial cancer and uh, complex atypical endometrial hyperplasia, um, the standard of care is hysterectomy. Um, now, to be sure, fertility preservation is unquestionably a valid reason to deviate from that standard of care. But once this is no longer a goal of the patient, I think that reverting to what we consider the most evidence-based approach to management of these conditions um, should be uh, the approach that we take. Um, uh, 
Uh, and from a more practical and clinically relevant standpoint, though, um, the risk factors that predispose these patients to experiencing these diagnoses are likely still present after childbearing is complete. Um, there obviously is a recurrence risk of uh, 20 to 40 percent for um, these conditions. Um, assuming a complete response can be achieved. Um, and so I think both of those sort of rationales offer uh, support for um, uh, pursuing hysterectomy, assuming the patient is a reasonable surgical risk uh, after childbearing is complete. And Roz, one last question. Uh, and certainly I think I've learned a tremendous amount from, from having this discussion with you and, and from your study. Um, should the results of the study change our patterns of practice uh, today, or should they impact our patterns of practice today? I, um, I don't necessarily think that any of our findings were uh, practice changing, but I do think some of them were practice affirming. Uh, I think that they really underscore the uh, important role that fertility specialists play in helping uh, patients make informed decisions about um, fertility-conserving uh, treatment. Um, I, think that, um, I think that the trend in increased use in fertility-sparing treatment over time, though, uh, suggests that greater, um, greater uh, uh, emphasis on research in this area is needed. We really need to figure out um, what is the best approach to deliver progestin-based um, uh, uh, fertility-conserving treatment? What's the optimal uh, approach to surveillance? Um, how do we really identify which patients are, um, are good candidates for, uh, for this? And so I think that, uh, while maybe not practice-changing, I think that it really validates um, the, uh, the approach that a lot of experts have taken in this area. Well, Ross, congratulations on, on your work, and thank you again for this opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much. I, uh, I really enjoyed this. Thank you.